a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> question mark. Don't miss the question mark. Is this truly a series of unfortunate events or is this not? So tonight we look at Cain and Abel. It's a story about worship, sandwiching rejection and murder. And in classical Hebrew storytelling, it follows a mirror. It begins with worship, it ends with worship. It then goes into rejection and then has rejection towards the second half. And in, this, in the center of all that is um, a murder scene, which may not surprise you. So you might remember early on, there's three main phases of the Bible. There's the creation phase. We spent a lot of time on that. It's come to an end. Last week, Mike launched us into the decreation phase, where God made this great world. Humans are in the process of decreating that great world, of wrecking it. The third phase is the New Testament, and that is called recreation, where God is working through Jesus and his church to recreate what the sinners have decreated and to get things back to the creation in a much better way. So, have you ever felt like the victim of bad luck? <laughs> like, like that day where you wake up and you feel like you are absorbed into a snowball of unfortunate circumstances and it keeps getting bigger as the day goes. You're like, what next? Or even week or month or year or life? <laughs> um, have you ever felt like the entire cosmos has conspired to give you misery? I think that Cain might have felt that way. There's a lot that the story doesn't say, but there's a lot that invites us to imagine what's going on. And I have to wonder how Cain felt. Event after event seemed to work against him. And I think it would be interesting for us to look at how does he respond to those things? What's his attitude? In some way, Cain becomes, he emerges as a subtle hero in our text. A hero who has potential to do something that we can model, but then at the crisis, at the climax, chooses to do the wrong thing. And we, in some ways, we should relate to Cain here. If you relate to feeling like the victim of bad luck or like things have just been stacked against you or you were dealt a bad hand of cards, you probably can relate to Cain. And I know that's weird to say out of the shoot because we're used to relating to Abel, the good guy who doesn't murder people. And like, how can I relate to a murderer? So let's read the passage and hear the story. So now Adam in verse one knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, it could literally be translated, I have begotten a child with Yahweh. She, in a sense, is putting herself in a creator's place. I have done this. And again, verse 2, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. Cain means to acquire, to gain, to seize. Abel means breath or vapor, something very temporary. We see there are two roles. In verse 3, now 
they worship. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, appropriate seeing that he's a farmer. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, appropriate because Abel worked with sheep. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why did Cain mess up? Was he inherently inadequate? Did he even know that he was in some sort of competition for acceptance? Did Abel somehow get the inside report on what God wants? There have been ideas thrown out. Um, God likes shepherds and not farmers. But that puts Cain at fault for doing something that Adam was told to do in gardening Eden. It can't be that. Others have proposed that Abel gave a blood offering, killing a lamb, and Cain gave vegetables and fruits and grains, and that God's always needed blood to receive worship. But that also is a miss for the new, uh, the the law in Leviticus said that Israel was to give grain offerings without blood at times. So that can't be it either. Perhaps the problem here is not in what was offered or in how it was offered, but in the heart behind what was offered. What is not said about Cain's offering is perhaps just as important as what is said about Abel's offering. Let's look at what is said about Abel's. Abel, verse 4, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The firstborn of his flock, that's the prime, the first product. And then he also gives the fat portions, which was the best part of the product. Cain, however, you might have noticed in verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. What isn't said there? We saw that Abel gave the best of his. We just see that Cain gave an offering. And that it's very possible that that Cain's problem was in the carelessness of his offering. God can receive our many gifts and our many expressions of worship and our many um, theological bents that we come to him with. But he does not like to be shortchanged. So in verse 5, he had no regard for Cain. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. It's a very dramatic picture of someone's entire countenance going south. Maybe even his posture. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Back to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the earth, Cain. So Cain here has counsel from God. God confronts his attitude 
and gives them counsel and says, Cain, Cain, be careful because this course you're going of trying to shortcut everything you do and trying to get an edge and get ahead and then seething with bitterness and jealousy and, and anger towards others when things aren't going your way. Cain, be careful. You're letting your emotions have dominion over you rather than you having dominion over your emotions. Now recall, in chapter 3, in the fall, Adam and Eve failed in their first commission, have dominion over the things of the earth. That includes serpents, things that crawl on the ground. And the serpent talks to them and begins to manipulate them, and they fault her because they were not able to protect the garden, which she said in chapter 2, verse 15, and they let the serpent have authority over them. Cain, uh, Adam and Eve failed because they did not have dominion over the physical world around them. Cain now is tested with dominion over the internal world within him. So now the fall has brought us to a much greater heightened sense of urgency. We not only have struggled controlling the elements around us and the people and the things and, and creation and the substances that come toward us and the things, but now it's coming inside of us and affecting the way we think and the way we feel and our emotions. And so now Cain is at a critical juncture like Adam and Eve were with the serpent. Cain now with himself, with his emotions. And so God comes to him and says, Cain, be careful. It's time that you don't do what your parents did and seize authority here. I'm giving you the grace to turn the corner. It's up to you to do so. So they worship. Cain is rejected. What's Cain going to do? In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What isn't said here, we don't really know. It was it Cain's intent to kill Abel. Did he seek Abel out and was he talking to him to try to get things to work? Was he hoping that Abel would say something that kind of would cool his hot head? Or did he kind of run into Abel in the course of things? Oh, hey, buddy. What were his motives? Was he aggressive or did things kind of escalate when things didn't go the way Cain had hoped they would? When Abel didn't come and apologize to him like he probably thought he should have. How dare you one-up me in worship? I'm the older, by the way. How did that go? What was said? And then when Cain killed Abel, did he mean to? They'd never seen murder before. In fact, they're in a new world of sin. Perhaps Cain had no idea what he was capable of. Did he know that when he put the rock to his brother's head right there, that it would end his life? Did he know what death was? How did Cain feel when that happened? He could have been shocked. In verse 9, God's character, his nature is here seen. The Lord said to Cain, And here's the climax. Where is Abel, your brother? A very simple question brings a story to its climax. This is not God seeking information. I don't know. You better ask Cain. I lost Abel. 
This is God pursuing someone who rejected his counsel and seeking to invite him into relationship with him. Cain went awry. He went out of God's will. He went against what God wanted. So God is pursuing Cain and saying, Cain, listen, this is the time to be real with me if you need to tell me something. This is exactly what happened with Adam. After Adam failed to have dominion and sinned, God came into the garden, not because he was thinking, oh, great, I lost the first humans. Now, what are we going to do? He asked Adam, where are you? Not because he lost him. He asked Adam, where are you? Because he wanted Adam to come out of the trees and face the forgiving God who is offering to him love and acceptance. What does Adam do? Oh, hey, so I guess kind of things went wrong. First of all, that woman you gave me, yeah, it's her fault. Everything happened. And then the woman said it was a serpent's fault. Both of them, Adam and Eve, reject God's invitation to forgiveness. And here, same pattern. Cain is in sin. He has not had dominion over his emotions. They get the best of him. Things go south. Did he mean to or not? We don't really know. But what we know is God is pursuing him and he's coming to him with arms open saying, Cain, where's Abel? I want to embrace you in forgiveness. But Cain does not look at God and say, you are right. I didn't listen to your advice. I should have known all along you are right. I'm so sorry. I now see the error of my ways and I want to follow your ways in the future. He does not say that. Cain looks at God and says the famous, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Which is a really nice way of saying, am I really responsible for what's happened to my brother? Hey, I know things are not really good with me and Abel, and whatever happened to him wasn't my fault. I'm sort of the victim of bad luck. First, I can't even bring a right offering. I'm always the rejected one. Why does everywhere I go, nobody loves me? Rotten life I have. And then I try to talk with my brother, and he gives me this face, and I don't know what happened. I didn't know my fist could do that, and... God, I'm not responsible for any of this. Don't ask me. He immediately tries to avoid the situation. And that is where Cain falls. Knowing the God I know and seeing him reveal himself in Jesus in the New Testament, I believe that God would have forgiven Cain there had he confessed his murder. I also believe you would have forgiven Adam and Eve had they confessed their sin. But it was the hiding that was the fall. It was the refusing to acknowledge that God will forgive us even when we choose not to go his way. That was the fall of man. And that fall continues to every generation. Yes, we all sin. But it's that we all continue to turn our backs upon his willingness to forgive us, that we all refuse to acknowledge our responsibility for the people around us and the things that we do to them and the things we do to ourselves. That is where the fall is hurting humanity. God can deal with sin. 
Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And in fact, if we take God's counsel to Cain, when he did not offer a good enough offering, he could have learned from his mistake. And then from the murder, he could have learned from that mistake. And we all can receive grace in our failures and mistakes to become better and to become more Christ-like as we turn to him and say, I'm sorry for this. Heal me of this. Let me be closer to you through this. We could grow in those things, but it's the refusal to receive forgiveness and to move forward in our mistakes that causes us to continue to regress in sin. That's the fall. That's where we keep falling into. And Cain at this critical climax refuses God's invitation to relationship. So verse 10, the Lord said, why or what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. That's our third third time. We've seen the word curse twice to Adam and Eve. Cursed is the ground because of you. And cursed are you above all livestock to the serpent. Now to Cain, cursed. From the ground are you, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And Cain, the one always seeking to grasp, is now losing. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so like his father, exiled from the garden because of his refusal to come to a loving God, here Cain exiled from the ground because of his refusal to come to a loving God. Our refusal to acknowledge sin and accept God's forgiveness drives us further from each other and further from him. And C.S. Lewis picks up on this real intriguingly in his book, The Great Divorce, where in hell, it's a fictitious picture of hell where people live and they continue to move apart from each other. And that's what the human relations in his picture of hell is. They just keep moving farther and farther away because they can't get along with each other. Isolation from God and each other. And Cain, recognizing this, says in verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Not, I'm sorry, but you are too harsh. I can't bear this. Go easier on me. But God, uh, verse 14, behold, you've driven me uh, today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. He's just afraid for himself. And then verse 15, God said to him, not so continuing to pursue him even still. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Not the mark of the beast, (laughs) but he put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain, now we follow So we've seen uh, there's been worship. Cain's rejected in worship. Cain murders as a response. Now Cain rejects, back to rejection, he rejects God's offer of forgiveness. And we're going to see the byproduct of his lifestyle, his genealogy. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took, uh, took two wives, two! And the name of one was Adah, just like his, his great-grandfather, right? Great-great-great-grandfather, acquire, Cain sees, acquire. He's acquiring now wives to himself. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. <laughs> that must have been a confusing household. Jabal and Jubal. <laughs> he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. She must have been famous, otherwise, we don't know who she is, but she's mentioned. Just so you know, he was related to her. Ooh. Now Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. What an honor. <laughs> Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. <laughs> so now he's falling in his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's footsteps, murdering. But this time, um, he's taking vengeance for himself, right? Someone hurt him, so he's like, fine, I'm going to take care of this myself. And that, too, is something that's not godlike. Jesus didn't retaliate against those who crucified him. He knows that judgment day is where vengeance will come. And he tells us the same. Look, don't retaliate. Don't hate your enemy. Vengeance is God's. So we see where his path went. It went to murder. Even people just insult you. Just murder this kid. And then multiple wives. So we also see, though, the civilizations beginning under Cain's family. Um, they're making great music. They've got in and out started with the livestock, and they've got uh, weapons of war forged under Tubal Cain. They're, they're doing what God asked humans to do. They're cultivating the world. They're, they're having dominion over aspects and figuring out what to do with the world. That's good. And I think that's pointing out that even the evil know how to fulfill God's commission over the earth. Maybe not in the most spiritual way, though. Because soon, Tubal Cain will be using these tools against humans, not for humans, right? But what we don't see, so we see their, their human and creational, their civilization achievements. But what we don't see is anything about God in their achievements. No mention of them. So they're just moving on with civilization. And God's left in the dust where Cain left him. Then the story turns, and it comes back to worship. It began with worship. It's going to end with worship. In verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. This is, of course, meanwhile. And called his name Seth. For the Lord said, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, People began to call upon the name of the Lord. That, when Seth was born and he began to have descendants like Cain had descendants, that was when God was worshipped. I don't know if you see it or if you're thinking that way, but I look at Cain and I think what rotten luck the guy has had. I mean, listen, we don't see any counsel on how to worship 
in this chapter. Like God's like, all right, you two, listen up. <laughs> I want a specific blood offering. You have to cut it like this and burn it with this fire on these stones. And he can't do this. And he can't do that. So Cain, I know you work the ground, but don't bring those things. Buy something from Abel. Like there's no like sit down. This is how you worship kind of seminar. God was just looking for people to just give their hearts to him. And so Cain might have felt like, oh, what rotten luck. You know, God doesn't accept my sacrifice. How many times did that happen? Was this like the 10th time that Cain was rejected and now he's like, I am so fed up? Or was he really that petty that after one time he's like, oh, I'm going to go kill someone? There's probably something here to Cain where he's constantly feeling shortchanged by his younger brother. Like he's always one-upping him. And here we just see one of those moments where he gets shortchanged again. He feels that way. When God's really looking at him saying, Cain, you're the one shortchanging yourself this whole time. But so, so Cain's going through this and he's feeling like, I can't believe I'm rejected again. Or like, this thing I try to do, it didn't work again. Everything's conspiring against me. And then, and then he goes and tries to talk to his brother. And again, we don't know how that happened. But was Cain willing to say, you know what? Yep, I didn't listen to you, God. The anger got better of me and I killed him. I'm really sorry. Instead, we kind of see this, is what happened over there my responsibility? Like, hey, I can't help that I am cursed with bad luck all my life. There's this victim mentality of everything stacked against me. It's not my fault. Now, it seems kind of petty to like take Cain out and make a caricature of him like that, like a cartoon character, like, he's just such an idiot. Look at him go. But if we all stop and think you know somebody like that, or if you're willing to look inside, I've said something like that too, where I just want to say, I can't believe how much bad luck is against me. We've all fought, even if, you know, Christians don't believe in luck, right? But we've all fought that way, though. We've thought that, we may not say luck, because it's like kind of banned from our vocabulary, but we might think like, uh, unfortunate circumstances. It's the same thing. It's this passive reaction to, I can't help everything working against me. And you may not even say it like that, but you, can't, you find yourself constantly as a common denominator in bad relationships. Like there's those people that just, you know, they get moved from this department to that department in their workplace because it's just not working out. And sooner or later, you know, they keep saying, well, it's that boss or it's that leader, it's that department head. And sooner or later, you just got to say, dude, there's a common denominator here. <laughs> like these, these are Cain-like people, right? These are Cain-like situations. So what is luck? If you don't use that word, you use something like it. And I'm going to show you in just a second that we all, actually Christians do believe in luck, but it just, just hold it, just stay seated. Don't get riled up. Um, what, 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 is, what is luck? Here's, here's a couple ways I thought about it, and it's a couple famous people said. Um, luck is what we hire after we fire responsibility. So Cain fires the responsibility for Abel. So what happened to Abel is bad luck, Right? And have you ever noticed that when we hire luck instead of responsibility, we tend to always get bad luck working for us and good luck working for everybody else? Have you ever noticed that? So luck is what we hire when we fire responsibility and we want to take a more passive role in life. Um, luck, this is uh, uh, Seneca, the Roman philosopher. He said, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. So the opportunity might seem like luck. You can't always control opportunities that come to you, but you can control your preparation for them. 
And when a prepared person and opportunity meet, success can happen. We sometimes jealously look at them and say, that person is just blessed with good luck. I never get those kinds of breaks. I just have bad luck. I am just a snowball of unfortunate events. (laughs) See, though, there is their responsibility. Are we somehow responsible for the so-called luck in our lives? Um, How about this? Luck is the culmination of unconscious habit played out over time. Luck is the culmination of unconscious habit played out over time. Habits that are both mental and physical. You begin to develop habits of thinking a certain way. And so you may have a more positive look on life or thinking that all opposition is actually opportunity in disguise. Or uh, physically, you have a routine, a certain routine that causes you to, um, well, here's a, here's a great, you, you may or may not relate to this, but it kind of relates to everything. Um, cell phones. Now, it's, it's really funny because I say this because I used to think that I was like good at this, but it's changed. I don't have my phone. I would like to show you. Uh, you know how many people like have cracked phones? Big spidery cracks across the front of the phone. If you ever look at a teenager's phone. (laughs) Okay. So um, most of us now carry these smartphones, right? And they're made of like glass on the front and you drop them and they break. Well, I've always had a theory and I still hold to it that a person's phone, it's all about habit of how you use the phone. Um, some people tend to have theirs break more often, like, I'm just such bad luck with these things. But I always like, well, you're always taking it out precariously out of your back pocket while you've got grocery bags in this hand and a kid in this hand and you're over a hard surface floor. That percentage doesn't look very good. That's a bad habit to just get my phone out whenever I want. Um, it, 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 but people are more mindful. Like, I never use my phone, my hands are full. I never use my phone on hard surfaces. I always keep it in a secure place. Balancing it on a stack of books while I'm going to make it to my office because I'm really talented at this. Like That's a bad percentage. Yes, I might 90% of the time make it without it falling, but you know what? It's going to fall sometime. And then it's going to be that day when you, spill, when you poured the milk on your hand and not in your cereal bowl or the coffee on your shirt and not in your cup. And you say, of course, bad luck today. It's just a rotten day. Well, no, there might be habits that are being formed there, like how you use your phone. Or how about how you pour your coffee? Like you might have a bad habit of rubbing your eyes while you pour it. Well, there's going to be a day when you're going to miss the cup and then you're going to call it luck. And I'm going to say, no, you have a bad habit of not keeping your eyes open when you pour your coffee. So maybe luck is simply the culmination of unconscious habits that are being developed both mentally and physically over time. Now, obviously, there are things that are literally out of our control, but we so often victimize ourselves. And I'm wondering how much of this is the culmination of habit developed over thousands of practices on a daily basis. So Cain... How much of Cain's murdering Abel was the culmination of not dealing with anger properly? It never starts with murder. Nobody wakes up a murderer. And nobody wakes up blowing a gasket and killing someone the first time. That is truly unfortunate if that happens to you. It's over time you dealt with anger, first in little ways that were not the best. And it culminates over a lifetime. You might deal with your anger by cursing someone out in your head. Five years later, you're actually cursing them to their face. 
You might, be, uh, you might take your anger out on a wall. Ten years later, it's on someone's face. Three times maybe, you know, you get in like some drunken fight in a bar or something. Well, there's going to come a time, right? We're talking about these percentages of habit, like phone curing and pouring coffee, the eyes closed. Like there's going to come a time when that's going to escalate to murder. And yet the murderer will at that point say, I can't believe the bad luck. That guy must have such a soft face. I threw him one punch and he died. I cannot believe this, right? But we're stepping back and saying, wait a minute. This person is living life by saying, I don't know, God. Am I responsible for them or for that? I'm actually a victim of bad luck. And But we, we're trying to rewind the tape and say, are you really? Or have you been in little things cultivating bad habits so that they're slowly snowballing through life? Luck is, true luck is, God seeking us when we did absolutely nothing to earn it, deserve it, or ask him to seek us. You see that? That is the most holy, true luck in the universe. We may call bad luck something I didn't deserve. It just kind of happened to me. Well, this is true luck. All goodness coming to us, and we did nothing to do it. We don't even deserve it. We weren't even looking for it. We call this grace. That's the biblical word for it. What if luck, good luck, was what follows good worship? What if luck followed worshipers? Doesn't the psalm say in the one, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as he's following the shepherd, it ends with surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. What if the things we call good luck are following those who make habits of worship toward God in their life? True luck following true worship. So what is true worship? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's always easier to do that. It's not Cain. It's not Cain. Worship needs dependence. Three things here. It needs dependence. It needs confession. And it needs habit. It needs dependence, confession, and habit. Dependence. Cain is the antithesis of dependence. His very name, his mom births him and says, look what I've done. Later, when she births Seth, she has a very different attitude towards it. She says, God has appointed for me another offspring. But when Cain was born, she's like, look what I did with God. Cain was born in that circumstance. He was named one who seizes, one who achieves, one who grasps, acquires, and then he goes into his offerings like, I know how to do this. And he puts it all together. And then he's rejected. And then what, is ha- what happens? God comes to him. He says, hey, 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 breathe, buddy. Come on. Okay. I want you to think this through. You have a choice here. You are in full control of what happens from this point on. I'm advising you to deal with this anger in your heart. But ultimately, you got to do what you're going to do. Cain's like, I got this, God. Kills Abel. It's still not Cain's fault, right? I still have it. It wasn't my fault. An idiot kind of like ran into my fist or my sword or whatever he had. Am I responsible for him, God? 
Cain did not choose a path of dependence. He chose a path of independence, of I'm self-sufficient. I can do it. I can forge my own way. I don't need God's counsel. This is exactly what his father and mother did. Back in Genesis 3, right, where they eat from the fruit, this wasn't mere, oh, I got deceived. God would really care for them and say, hey, let me teach you now about how the serpent will deceive you. It wasn't like God just put them to a test they weren't prepared for. Bad teachers do that. Bad teachers don't teach you on something and then test you on what they didn't teach you. Like, that's just horrible. Oh, you all got Fs. Huh? You're not smart enough, I guess. <laughs> it's your job to make them smart, right? Well, God didn't like put them to this test like, oh, let's see if they do it. Let's see if they fall for the stupid snake or not. Like, that wasn't what happened. This was willfully letting the serpent deceive them because they didn't want to depend on God's way. They wanted to discern for themselves what was right and wrong, which is literally what the serpent says in 3 verse 5. It says that he comes to them, and in 3 5, it says, God knows that, this is a serpent talking, God knows that when you eat of it, the, the tree of knowledge, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Now, that's not the thing we're trying to do. Be loving like God and forgiving like God and holy like God. That's not what he means. Let's read it in Hebrew. You will be like Elohim. Which goes back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is not God's name. It's his title. His name is Yahweh which you see in your Bibles with all capital letters, L-O-R-D. When you just see God, that's Elohim. And it's just a title. What's the title? Hebrew translates it. King, ruler, judge. And then you can see how it also means God. Because God is all of those things. So when the devil says, the serpent says, when you eat of the tree of knowledge, you will be Elohim. You will be kings and rulers. And then what does he say? Knowing good and evil. In other words, you will be your own judge, your own ruler, your own authority, your own king over what is good and evil. You will get to determine your laws, your code of conduct. You will get to call white white, black, 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 white, white, black, whatever you want to call, you call it, you name it. I know God told you to name the animals and have dominion over the earth, but what if, what if, what if you could do that without God? I mean, he's kind of limiting fella, you know. He told you to not eat of this tree. Well, I'm telling you, if you eat of this tree, you can actually do everything God asked you to do just without his help. You can make the calls for yourself. Don't let God tell you and limit you with these things. See how appealing that looks? This is not just deception like, oh, I didn't know that. Oops. This is more deception of, oh, you mean I can do a good thing my way. And so by eating from the tree of knowledge, they exchange dependence on God's power to rule the creation and take instead independence that I can do it. We can rule this creation on our own. That's why God wanted to meet from the tree, of not, uh, the tree of life. Keep coming to me, learning from me, keep depending on me. The minute they cut that tree out, they're being independent. This is revolution. This is rebellion. This is, we've got this, you wise old king. We can do this. 
So what's happened under human rulership, under human independence? Well, the first story is very bleak. Cain kills Abel. It's not a good start. Then there's polygamy. Then there's killing youth for insulting old men. It's not a very good start. Gets worse. That's why we're in the decreation phase. Therefore, worship requires dependence. It requires our choice to keep going to the tree of life and saying, I'm at a crossroads every day to choose who is my king. I'm either my own king and make my own calls and my own shots and go my own way, or I am a servant of the king doing his word in his way. And Cain is given the choice. Listen, buddy, you've got sin in your heart right now. Deal with it or it's going to be bad. And Cain said, I've got this under control. Worship needs dependence upon God. It needs to realize that without his goodness, we are capable of things like Cain. That's when worship starts is when we realize a need. God wants to be needed. It's not that God needs our praise. It's that we need to give him praise. We need to keep saying, you're the king. We are rulers on your behalf, not on our own behalf. It's dependence, confession, number two. I already dived into this when we were going through the text, but uh, you saw Adam was given an opportunity. Adam, where are you? There is an opportunity to confess. Now, the word confess isn't a word we really like. It feels kind of gross. sounds very religious. sounds very, frankly, most of you probably think very Catholic because you do your confessions right at the booth. Uh, all confession is is admission. It's admitting. It's saying, yep, <laughs> I did wrong and you were right all along, God. Do you know how healing that is in a relationship with God? To simply say, I was wrong and you're right. That's all God wants to hear from his rebellious creatures. That's all Cain had to say. But Adam and Cain, Adam said, <laughs> what, what do you mean wrong? The woman was wrong. Bad luck you gave her to me. I'm really, that's the attitude. Cain, same thing. He does not admit There's no confession. So to have worship is to enter into that relationship God's inviting us into no matter where we're at and just say, yeah, yeah, I guess I needed to be more dependent on you. You were right all along. And then third, habit. Habit. So what if good luck, all all luck is, is the formation of our habits? Yeah. Listen, brothers and sisters, daily habits, even little, can be expressions of worship. We always, va- we're Americans, so we overlook little things. We love the big, spectacular, dancing with the stars, and American Idol, and Super Bowl. Like, we love those things. The little habits can be worship. Because here's what happens, is big, heroic acts are never someone's once-in-a-lifetime chance to do the right thing. It doesn't happen that way. Big heroic acts are not someone who just suddenly says, oh, here's a moment where I can be the hero. Let me be the hero. It doesn't happen that way. Big heroic acts are simply one of a thousand choices this person has made throughout his life to be sacrificial. The soldier who jumps on a grenade, he did that a thousand times already. 
This just happened to be the biggest one yet. There is a habit, there's a formation where you're constantly giving of yourself that that act can happen. The same is true of negative actions. Cain murdering Abel. This isn't the first time Cain did something wrong. This is simply that one in a thousand times he did it wrong. The same thing. It just culminated. And here is now a murderous act. How many times did he hate his brother in his heart? Do you realize that's why Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not murder. I say you don't hate your brother in your heart. That's why he says that. It's not that when I hate my brother in my heart, suddenly I'm separated from God and he can't talk to me more like some big sin happened. He's saying that that's sin because I don't want it to lead to real sin that really hurts people. See what Jesus even taught us that the little habits matter. We have to form practices daily, even little ones that help us get on the right track. And God, when he sees us, this is worship to him, that the whole life is in submission to him. Sometimes you may be the person that doesn't think that praying or reading your Bible is really accomplishing much, but what about the habit of doing it? It was two weeks ago. We, we talked about this a little bit. Um, just the habit of doing it, will, just the habit of opening the Bible or listening to it or praying will change your life because it's the little things that add up. Now, here's what's so important to understand is that habit as worship is dependence on God because the opposite of habit is willpower. And willpower is my constant moment-by-moment choice to do the right thing. Do you know what the problem with willpower, other than it relies on my own power? (laughs) The problem with willpower is that it gets exhausted. I can reject, favorite illustration, I've probably said this so many times, you guys think of it, I can reject ice cream all day. But when I'm up a minute past my bedtime, oh my gosh, that is so tempting. (laughs) Ice cream is so tempting. Only then, only then. Why is that? Well, there's probably all kinds of other psychological and philosophical reasons, but, and this breaks down in many ways, one of the main reasons is I'm tired at the end of the day. My capacity to make choices has been numbed. I've been making choices all day long, and this one's not a hard one to make all of a sudden when you're tired. Well, let's see. I can either put up another fight and go brush my teeth, which I hate doing, and go to bed, which sounds boring. It's Friday night. Or I can eat something delicious, and when it fills all the cracks left over from dinner, doesn't it just feel so good? That's like a really bad competition when you're tired and you've been making choices all day. That's the problem with willpower is that we can exhaust it. For the record, Steve Jobs and... um. Um, Mark Zetterberg, Facebook guy, Steve Jobs, Apple guy. Um, both of them wear the same outfit every single day. Steve Jobs used to. Of course, he's passed now. They wore the same outfit every single day. Do you know why? They said, I would rather expend my choosing power on more important matters. And there's a lot of truth to that, brothers and sisters. Are we expending our willpower on things that don't really matter because we haven't cultivated habit. You see what habit does is it causes us to do things without expending energy. You just do it because it becomes second nature. And if we didn't have to spend so much energy on choosing 
to pray or read our scriptures or control our mouth or love our wives or husbands or serve our kids or all these. Th- so, that, this is by 8 a.m. You've already done all that, right? If we didn't expend so much energy on so many tedious decisions, there would be a lot more left for the bigger things that come up in the day. This is why I think worship is, a uh, habit is worship. And to be mindful about the habits we're cultivating, that we don't fall into the bad luck victim mentality of Cain. And that's where I just end it and rest and say, was Cain really the victim of bad luck? Did things really stack up against him? Was it really fair to say, but I didn't know? Or was Cain simply someone who didn't worship from the very beginning? Rather than depending on God, he was independent, trusted himself. Rather than confessing his wrongdoings, he was always, well, you, can, you gotta understand the circumstances, excusing himself. And were his habits in place? Or was he constantly the sort that had the habit of give just enough so I can grab the rest? And then when he worships God, he does the same thing, just enough so I can keep the rest. And then he blows up all mad. True luck, brothers and sisters, as the worship team comes up, True luck is God seeking us when we did nothing to ask for it or deserve it. And, 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 and our daily response to that true luck, to that grace. Are we making habits of responding to God or are we making habits of resisting his voice? Oh yeah, I know you've been asking me to serve this person that way, but uh, this isn't a good week. I'll do it next week. Is this a habit of yours? Careful, you're hardening yourself. So God keeps seeking us. How are you responding on a daily basis? And how are the other little places of your life? It is worship. And let's not neglect the little things. So as we enter toward communion, toward the great model God in and through Jesus giving his life for us. Giving his body and his blood. As we come to him, let's remember our great dependence on him. Let's remember to admit, to confess our faults, if any come to mind. And let's ask God to help us cultivate better habits that can lead us into more worshipful living.